Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. My guest today is Gary Cox of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. A recent CDC study claims that raw milk causes 150 times more outbreaks than pasteurized milk. The Weston A. Price Foundation has analyzed the study and finds it flawed and misleading. Weston A. Price President Sally Fallon Morell says the CDC data released in the Langer paper March 2012 actually showed no statistical difference in the rate of illness attributed to raw milk or products produced from raw milk compared to those produced from pasteurized milk. So CDC used the number of outbreaks to make raw milk look bad. CDC defines an outbreak as two or more illnesses and outbreaks involving raw milk or raw milk products involve far fewer individuals than outbreaks involving pasteurized milk. And I say, as usual, the CDC manipulates and cherry-picks data to support big ag when the results don't match what the CDC wants. In other raw milk news, Amargosa Creamery in Nye County, Nevada, is hoping for an assembly bill to be passed so it can sell its raw milk and products outside of its county. Nye County had set up a county milk commission in order for Amargosa to sell its dairy products, but they could only sell in that county. Nevada currently allows certified raw milk to be sold anywhere in the state, but doesn't give certification power to county milk commissions. So in other words, Nevada doesn't really allow raw milk to be sold anywhere in the state because they've created a ridiculous loophole. Let's hope the state assembly will vote for the bill and let Amargosa be able to sell their product outside of their small population. Next, Indian rice farmer Sumant Kumar has been using organic, traditional farming methods and achieving higher yields of crops than the farmers using modern methods. Kumar has been using a traditional crop management protocol system called System of Root Intensification, or SRI. The system plants half the number of seeds than farms using more modern systems spaces them at intervals of 10 inches, plants the seeds much earlier, keeps the soil drier, pays close attention to the weed growth, hand removes weeds, and gives the plants more water and nutrients. Always great to hear how the traditional methods are better for the plants, for the farmers, for the planet, and for us. And finally, the California Assembly is proposing a bill that would call for a statewide ban on plastic bags in supermarkets, requiring shoppers to bring reusable cloth bags or buy recycled paper bags. The bill has been proposed the past two years, but narrowly failed each time. While it failed in state legislature, during that time, over 70 cities and counties in California have passed their own laws banning plastic bags. California State Assembly, take note from these cities that we don't need to carry our groceries in these bags produced from fossil fuels, and we should make this a statewide law. And now, for the main course, which today is the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. 
Farm to Consumer is a sister organization of the Weston A. Price Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization set to protect family farms, artisan food producers, and allow consumers and affiliate communities to buy directly from these farmers and produce without interference from federal, state, or local government. The Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund receives little to no corporate funding and gets its main source of revenue from membership fees, individual donations, and public interest litigation grants from the Farm to Consumer Foundation. Here to talk with me about the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund is Gary Cox, the lead attorney for the fund, who works tirelessly defending farmers across the country that the government has been trying to prevent from selling their products to consumers. Gary, thank you so much for coming on my program. Sure. Thanks a lot for inviting me on. I appreciate it. I really appreciate what the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund does as far as reaching out to small farmers and protecting them as well as protecting consumers for the rights to get food directly from the farmers. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we do. Uh, this organization was founded back in 2006, late 2006. We organized a board of directors. We developed a mission statement, uh, wrote our bylaws, filed all the papers with the Ohio Secretary of State's office. And then on July 4, 2007, we formally launched to gain membership. And since then, we've grown to it's, it's close to 3,000 members now nationwide. And uh, the mission is to um, defend the rights of farmers and protect the uh, rights of consumers to have access to nutrient-dense food, including raw milk and um, poultry, meat, eggs, and other products produced directly on the farm. Have you been involved with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund since its start? Yeah, since its beginning, yeah, correct. I met Sally Fallon here in Ohio in uh, the summer of 2006. There was a uh, raw milk bill that was being introduced in the Ohio General Assembly, and I was asked to provide testimony before the Ag Committee, and Sally was also asked to provide some testimony before the Agricultural Committee, and that's how we met. We actually had lunch after we uh, added our testimony. And during lunch, she said to me that she had always had this idea of forming an uh, organization that would defend farmers who get in trouble when they try to make their agricultural products directly available to the consumer. And she asked if I would be interested in helping. I said, sure. So I actually formed the organization, wrote the bylaws, filed all the papers with the Secretary of State's office, and um, I'm the one who actually came up with the name for the organization as well, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. And so I've been general counsel since its inception, and I still serve as counsel, general counsel to this day. And the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund then was born in Ohio. It sure was, yeah. There was uh, several Ohio grass-based uh, grazing dairy producers who were uh, making raw milk available through the concept of a herd share. In Ohio, it's illegal to actually sell raw milk, and so uh, the uh, farmers here in Ohio developed the herd share model and were getting harassed by the uh, local health departments and the Ohio Department of Agriculture. And so we saw a need for an organization like this and uh, that's when we decided to go ahead and form the organization. Well, I like that because I'm an Ohio native, live in California now, but grew up in Ohio, spent all my childhood there until I was an adult. So yeah. I always got to love that, that it was 
created in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we're an Ohio nonprofit organization, and we have tax-exempt status as a 501c4 organization under the Internal Revenue Service. Most of our offices, though, are actually in uh, Washington, D.C., in that area. But a lot of our board members are scattered throughout the United States. So we are technically an Ohio nonprofit organization, but we have offices in other locations, and our board members are, like I said, scattered all over the United States. So we're, a, you know, a true national organization. Right, and because you're a true national organization, I think it would make more sense to have it mainly based out of D.C., especially with issues pertaining to farm bills and other legislature in the Congress. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we've actually approached Ron Paul a couple of times and have asked him to introduce some uh, raw milk legislation uh, before Congress. Uh, we also uh, work with certain legislators throughout the states as well as in Congress to try to enact legislation which makes it easier for a farmer to uh, market his products directly to a consumer without having to be regulated to death. So, yeah, it's it's good to have offices in, Was in the Washington area as well. And before you had created the Farm to Consumer, what type of law were you involved with? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. I started my legal career working for the Ohio Attorney General's Office in their Environmental Enforcement Section. So I basically prosecuted polluters for 14 years on behalf of the citizens of the state of Ohio. I eventually became a senior assistant attorney general and dealt with all areas of environmental law, water pollution, air pollution, solid waste, hazardous waste. And towards the end of my, my tenure there at the attorney general's office, I really became interested in sustainable agriculture, organic production, uh, farmers markets, all this kind of stuff. And I actually resigned from the Attorney General's office in 2003, and I became an organic vegetable farmer for two years. I was leasing some land from a friend of mine who owned 35 acres, and I developed a CSA, sold to uh, some grocery stores and a restaurant, and also at the local farmer's market here. So I did that for two years, but at the end of the two years, my friend was not able to continue to lease land to me, so I went back into the law, and I went into private practice with a law firm here in Columbus, and I started focusing on agricultural law when I was at the law firm, and one thing led to another. Uh, the Legal Defense Fund became a client of mine, and I eventually uh, left the uh, law firm, and I just am not just practicing on my own, representing uh, the Legal Defense Fund and its members. How long have you been practicing on your own just for the Legal Defense Fund? Uh, well, just on my own since 2008. But I've been representing the Legal Defense Fund since 2006. Okay. And so you'd started first as just an environmental attorney, which that was kind of my background too. Originally, I was just interested in all environmental issues and still am. I mean, after all, I'm on a station called Green Earth Radio, which talks about all the issues. This show is specifically about food. Sure, yeah, yeah. It, the environmental movement is, you know, it was hot and heavy in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it became a real hot potato in the 70s when Congress enacted a lot of the uh, current existing environmental laws. Environmental law is still, you know, it's, it's a crucial issue, especially with greenhouse gases now and global warming. That's uh, the hot topic. 
but I'm really focusing on sustainable agriculture now. It's, it's my passion to represent small individual family farmers who are pasture-based and who, you know, really are engaged in sustainable practices who want to produce a high-quality product and make it directly available to the consumers. That's a lot of what I'm focused on, too, because I'm really focused on people being able to get the freshest food directly from farmers and to also learn about the truths about what foods are healthy and how food should be properly raised and prepared. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting the way our food system, the conventional food system, is really controlled by a very few large-scale corporate conglomerates. When you look at the beef industry or the pork industry or the chicken industry, there's, there's only three or four major players within each of those industries. And they really have such a strong lobbying uh, presence in Washington, D.C., that they actually dictate and control the food policy in this country. The USDA and the Food and Drug Administration, as far as I am concerned personally, they're, they're doing a terrible job regulating uh, food safety and nutrition in the country. Those two federal agencies, in my opinion, have no clue what it means to produce healthy food. The agencies seem to just turn a blind eye to these large-scale processing facilities that process food into crap, really, which is all we have in the grocery stores. It's full of calories, but it lacks any sort of nutrition. And now we're finding out that all the genetically modified corn, soybeans, um, these types of foods are really, really dangerous for us to eat. So I'm proud to represent the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund because our members and our farmers are trying to create an alternative food system in the country that actually produces real food that's nutritious and healthy for you to eat. I'm glad that you brought up the issue of GMOs. That was actually a question I was going to get into. Has the farm to consumer been involved with issues regarding labeling GMOs? Tangentially, yeah. Uh, we've, we've been approached, well, when, when California had its Prop 37 campaign to require the labeling of you know, GMO foods. We supported that. Uh, we are, um, I, I'm actually working a, um, as part of a national coalition of states that are trying to get GMO labeling initiatives on the ballots of the various states. And I'm doing that with the approval and, and the sanction of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. So we're working behind the scenes, but it's, it's not necessarily uh, the type of case that we would bring that fits within our, our core mission statement. But yeah, tangentially, yeah, we favor uh, label GMO products and uh, you know we support anybody's efforts who are trying to achieve that end. Right, and there's a couple big issues as far as GMO labeling that just came up. First, Vermont is soon to vote on what could be the first state to have a GMO labeling. You have any thoughts on that as far as if that'll pass? Well, you know, the, the anti-GMO forces are pretty rich and they have a lot of money and they have a lot of power and influence but it's my understanding that the New England uh, mentality up there is pretty independent and I, I have I, I cannot guess whether the, the initiative is going to pass or fail I have no idea what it's going to do but I know Vermont's not the only state that has something um, close to being voted on I think the state of Washington as another initiative, and I think Connecticut is close, and I think Illinois is close. And in fact, California itself, it's working on 
trying to find sponsors for a GMO labeling bill to be introduced into the General Assembly in California. I suspect GMO labeling is going to happen. I, I heard recently that Whole Foods has pledged that within five years, all of its products are going to be labeled if they contain any GMOs in it. And I think that's just the beginning of the, the turning of the tide. I think that's the beginning, too. I certainly think Whole Foods plan is a good start. I know some people that question if it's going to be thorough enough as far as the labeling or if it's happening too slow. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think labeling is a good idea, but I personally, I would ban uh, genetically modified organisms and foods. It's pretty interesting. When you look at the federal laws, the um, U.S. EPA laws, and specifically this, this law called uh, FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. FIFRA actually regulates pesticides, and GMOs are actually defined as a pesticide under FIFRA. It's called a plant-incorporated protectant. A pesticide, obviously, is something that is designed to protect a seed and protect a plant and it's designed to ward off pests, funges, you know, fungi and, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, microorganisms. And so a plant-incorporated protectant, by definition, is a genetically modified substance. A seed has been genetically modified such that it can ward off pests. So if you have... GMOs that are regulated as pesticides, what I would propose is that we ban pesticides as ingredients in our foods. And if, if you took that common sense position, you would ban the, you know, the use of GMOs in any type of food. So I, I applaud the people who are you know, pushing for labeling. I personally just don't think it goes far enough, and I would just ban them and force them to be regulated as a pesticide, which they are, and just ban all pesticides in foods. You can't use pesticides as an ingredient in a food. I would agree with that. And similarly, how pesticides, I mean, although their purpose is to keep away insects, they often end up getting into the food. And GMOs can do the same thing even for non-GMO farmers. These crops can blow over into the organic farms. Oh, sure. Yeah, it happens all the time. In fact, Monsanto, one of the largest patent holders of some, uh, you know, genetically modified seeds, anytime its seed cross-contaminates, you know, the seed of an adjacent farmer's crops, they sue the adjacent farmer for patent infringement. And they invariably end up winning because the judges lack the backbone to stand up to Monsanto, and they lack the common sense in recognizing that if Monsanto's seeds contaminate a neighbor's seeds, well, then Monsanto has actually caused the trespass onto that adjacent farmer. Um, I'm also a member of this organization called the Ohio Ecological Food and Farm Association, OFA. And OFA was one of them, several dozens of plaintiffs that filed a lawsuit here in the federal court in Ohio, I believe, uh, that claimed that um, Monsanto's patents on its seeds were illegal. 
we filed suit. Maybe the suit was filed in New York. I, I can't recall. But we filed suit against Monsanto, all these organizations, all these individual farmers claiming that the patents that Monsanto has is illegal. We unfortunately had our case dismissed by the trial court. The trial court was claiming that none of our you know, plaintiffs had suffered any injury yet, meaning none of our, our farmers' seed had been contaminated yet. Therefore, without an injury, we couldn't sue. We've challenged that decision and we've appealed it. We're currently in the Court of Appeals. So hopefully we will get a decision from a Court of Appeals that basically says, yes, the threat of contamination from Monsanto's seeds is inevitable and that's not the purpose of a patent. Therefore, the patent should be declared invalid. I know in addition to GMOs, another issue that Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund is very passionate about is raw milk. What cases currently do you have going involving raw milk sales? Yeah, we've since we've launched in uh, July 4th, 2007, we now have had 38 cases where we've represented farmers. And I believe of those 38, I think about 26 have involved uh, raw milk in one form or another. We have a couple of cases in Wisconsin where the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection filed suit against a couple of our um, members up there claiming that the herd share operation that they were engaged in was illegal. So we challenged that and claimed that a herd share is basically a contract between a farmer and a whole bunch of people who buy the cow from the farmer. So all of these people go in together and they collectively own a cow and then they enter into a separate contract with the farmer whereby they board their cow at the farm of the farmer. So the farmer, just like boarding a horse at a stable, so these people board their cow at the farm of the farmer and the farmer takes care of the cow, tends to the cow, milks the cow, and makes the milk available to the owners of the cow. And that was the arrangement that our clients had entered into and were operating under when they were told by the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection that that arrangement was illegal and that it should stop. So we filed a declaratory judgment action before a court in Wisconsin and asked the judge to declare whether or not this herd share arrangement is or is not a legal, valid, binding, and enforceable form of contract. And the judge, believe it or not, ruled that um, the plaintiffs in our case did not have the right to own a cow. The plaintiffs did not have the right to drink their own milk from their own cow. And the plaintiffs did not have the right to board their cow under a contract uh, at the farm of a farmer. So we, needless to say, we've appealed that decision to the Court of Appeals and uh, we're waiting on a decision from the court there. We've had other cases in um, uh, Pennsylvania and New York and Missouri and Iowa where the issue of the sale of raw milk has come up and whether or not uh, the herd share concept was or was not a valid uh, form. We've had a case where we've sued the Food and Drug Administration 
challenging a regulation that they have which prohibits the interstate transport of raw milk across state lines for human consumption. We challenged that regulation and claimed that it violated the right to privacy and the right to travel, as well as some other constitutional guarantees. And when we filed our uh, complaint, the Food and Drug Administration filed a motion to dismiss our case, and in their motion they claimed three basic things. Number one, no parent has the right to feed their child the food of their choice. Number two, nobody has the right to consume the food of their choice. And number three, nobody has the right to bodily health or bodily integrity. And it was mind-blowing to me to hear our federal government tell us, we as citizens, we don't have those rights, and we as parents especially we don't have those rights. So we've had, you know, numerous, numerous cases involving raw milk throughout the United States. Um, most of those cases are currently under appeal. Some of the cases we lost, uh, yet in the, in the one case involving the Food and Drug Administration, we did get the Food and Drug Administration to admit that even though this regulation is on the books, they have no intention of enforcing it against an individual. So, for example, it's illegal to buy raw milk in the state of Ohio, but it is legal to buy it in the state of Pennsylvania. So because of the Food and Drug Administration's admission that they're not going to enforce the law against an individual, I can go to Pennsylvania and legally purchase raw milk and then bring it back across state lines and bring it back into Ohio and then commit here. So those are, those are just some examples of the types of raw milk cases that we've had. And certainly, yeah, it's crazy, some of the rulings in these cases. I also noticed that where a lot of these raw milk cases are taking place, our areas, the Midwest, Ohio, Wisconsin, and this is very much what's known as America's Dairyland. Do you think that a lot of the rules against raw milk has to do very much with the influence of the big ag dairy companies in those states? I, I personally have no clue why government takes this position, but I suspect that that's the reason. I suspect it is big dairy, afraid of losing market share. And when we have gone into states to try to change the law, we have been told by lobbyists for big dairy that one of the major concerns that big dairy has is if somebody drinks raw milk and they do get sick, it's going to make the whole dairy industry look bad. And so big dairy doesn't want to lose its, you know, so-called good image that it allegedly has. But when you look at the statistics, there's more people that get sick, and in fact, there's more people that die from consuming pasteurized milk and pasteurized dairy products than there are people from consuming raw, you know, fresh, unprocessed um, dairy products. And, and the, reason, the reason for that is basically because there's really, there's two types of raw milk out there. The first type of raw milk is produced by large-scale CAFO operations, confined animal feeding operations where the animals are milked three times a day. They're given hormones. They're given antibiotics. They stand around feces and urine, and they're packed into these uh, holding pens 
250 animals at a time waiting to be milked. And they're milked and maintained and held under such filthy, contaminated conditions that the milk that they produce has to be pasteurized, without a doubt. That's the only way you can safely consume that milk is you have to pasteurize it first. The other type of raw milk that exists in this country comes from animals that are fed grass. They're allowed to roam on pasture. They don't stand in their own feces or urine. They're not confined. They get plenty of fresh air and exercise. And the farmers who tend to those animals are really concerned about contamination and sanitation such that when you milk those animals, you can indeed drink that milk directly from the animal after it's been milked. So, yeah, there are two types of raw milk, one type of which you most definitely better pasteurize it or you're going to get sick or maybe get killed from drinking it, as opposed to the type of raw milk that our type of members produce or members of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. That's the thing about raw milk is that if anyone saw the conditions that these raw dairy farms that are supported by Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund and Weston A. Price and other similar organizations, these dairies are so cleanly that none of these pasteurized dairies keep up to these standards. But if you look at the conditions of a dairy like Organic Pastures in Clarivale in California or like your family cow, which is in your neighboring state of Pennsylvania, these farms, they do inspections before the FDA to make sure that everything is okay because they know that they're being heavily scrutinized by the FDA, and they're not going to want to let anything slide. We've been maintaining a lot of statistics since we've started this organization, and we've found studies that have analyzed the conventional dairy industry, and they have found that at least 4% of all the milk in this country that's produced by the conventional dairy contains some form of pathogen in it, whether that's salmonella, campylobacter, listeria, E. coli, or whatever. 4%, at a minimum, 4% of all the milk in this country contains those pathogens. That's why that milk has to be pasteurized before it's consumed. And even then, a lot of the pasteurization plants and those types of facilities have endemic problems with listeria and they can't get rid of listeria. And sometimes the listeria gets back into the milk after it's pasteurized through the bottling and um, packaging operations. But you don't see that with, you know, the real fresh, unprocessed, wholesome milk that's produced by our types of farmers. That's the thing. The raw milk is good when it's done correctly with cows being able to have plenty of access to grass and sunshine and the pasteurized dairy, it doesn't completely protect it from all these things. We'll talk more about issues regarding people's access to raw milk and other food issues for consumers, but first we have to hear from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, 
lettuce be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website aleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm speaking with Gary Cox. He's general counsel for the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. We've been talking about cases regarding access to raw, fresh milk. Gary, in addition to raw milk, what are other cases that the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund takes on? Well, one of the things we're seeing now is local government, like the county or the township level, are trying to put farmers out of business. And the tact they're using is the local zoning ordinances. There uh, was a recent case in Michigan where a family uh, wanted to produce a lot of eggs and sell eggs and poultry, and the local uh, township was going to prohibit them from engaging in those agricultural practices, saying that it's a violation of the zoning laws. Well, there's a, a strong, what they call Right to Farm Act in Michigan that actually allows for the um, conduct and the performance of agricultural activities as long as it's commercial in nature. And in this uh, recent case, the court found that you know, the raising of chickens and poultry and eggs is an agricultural operation. And because the eggs and the poultry were being sold, that it's a commercial operation. Therefore, these zoning requirements, uh, they didn't necessarily apply. We just recently had a case in uh, Pennsylvania, an Amish guy's uh, old barn that he, uh, he stored hogs in it, dairy animals, horses, hay, farming implements. He also had a store there that he used to sell the products from his farm. That barn burned down. And when he built it, he rebuilt it basically in the same way, only he moved the store from around the back of the barn to the front of the barn. And uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania tried to claim that the construction of that barn by including the store violated the construction code. And we claimed that uh, a barn is an agricultural building, and agricultural buildings are exempt from the construction code. Commonwealth, they, they wouldn't buy that argument. They uh, 
filed criminal charges against this Amish guy, and we, we just went to trial this past week on Monday the 11th, and we actually won. The court agreed with us that the barn is a agricultural building because you've got livestock in it. Even though there's a store there as well, that doesn't mean that the barn's not an agricultural building. So we're seeing that the local governments are now trying to put small family farmers out of business as well, but they're not having much success. So that, that, that's another type of case we have. A, a third type of case we're seeing now um, involves buyer's clubs, where a bunch of people get together and they source uh, farmers and vendors and producers of certain agricultural products, and they try to buy exclusively from these farmers by forming a buyer's club. And again, the state will try to step in or the local county will step in and try to argue that these buyer's clubs need permits or licenses or storage facilities or warehouse facilities or coolers or freezers and all of this kind of stuff just in order to run the buyer's clubs. So beyond the raw milk cases, we're, we're getting into buyer's club cases and also uh, these right-to-farm cases as well. The buyer's club cases have been a big issue, and there was a great documentary that talked about that called Farmageddon by Kristen Canty. And if anyone has not seen Farmageddon yet, I strongly urge that they watch that to learn exactly what the government is doing with all these raids on private buying clubs and people wanting to buy directly from farmers. Yeah, it, it's a great documentary. Kristen had heard about the work that we were doing at, uh, at the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and, and she was just so outraged at what was happening. Governments, um, you know, taking product away from farmers, governments executing search warrants, governments holding a family at gunpoint hostage, for hours, you know, including little children held at gunpoint, um, government confiscating sheep, quarantining them, and then killing them for no apparent reason. So she was just outraged at what was going on and contacted her local media outlets and tried to get them to publicize the story, and, and they refused to do so. And this is in the Boston area, you know, of all places. You know, the Boston Tea Party, the, the, the hotbed of insurrectionism in our, you know, American Revolution. But for whatever reason, local media there in Boston refused to publicize the story. So Kristen, bless her heart, she took it upon herself to make these stories known. So she hired a cameraman. She hired a producer. She rented a van, and uh, she and her daughter, she's, started traveling around and interviewing these farmers who were the subjects of all these raids. And so Kristen put a, a fabulous documentary together uh, with her own funds and her own money and has really highlighted the predicament that a lot of these small family farmers face from an overly aggressive and oppressive and harassing government. Anybody who sees the documentary, I think they'll be outraged at what our government is doing to our, our, our uh, poor small family farmers. Oh, I think you can only be outraged from it. And it's very easy to rent it. It's available on, I think, all of the on-demand video sites, Netflix and Amazon. And I know even I'd watched it on DirecTV on their on-demand. So 
very easy to access. You can also purchase a copy of it. And like I said, again, if you have not seen Farmageddon, you really need to. And for me, one of the farms that it talked about was in where I live in LA, it was the private buying club of Rossum Foods and just what had happened with them that they were a private buying club that was offering raw milk and they were shut down. Yeah, that's that was a sad case. Um, Sharon Palmer was um, using her farm to allow the Rossum folks to board their goats at Sharon's farm. And she was tending to and taking care of and managing the, the goats and making the, the milk available to the owners of the goats. And the, uh, the state and the county claimed that Sharon was selling raw milk illegally and tried to shut her down. Los Angeles County raided the Rossum warehouse and claimed that, you know, they were illegally selling raw milk and shut them down. Los Angeles County, the prosecution's office, actually arrested Sharon and uh, the operator of the Rossum warehouse. And an individual lady, Victoria Block, who whose only involvement really was to work the uh, the farm stand at a farmer's market to um, enlist people into Rossum and to get them to sign a membership and become members of Rossum. So that, that's just outrageous conduct on, be, on behalf of, uh, you know, the governmental authorities throwing these people in jail for the night. In fact, uh, the operator of Rossum was in jail for several days before he was released. The Legal Defense Fund, we represented Sharon in a in a related case in Ventura County. We, I think, successfully closed that one case, but now Ventura County has brought additional charges against Sharon. And we also represented Victoria Block, uh, the lady who was um, trying to recruit her for Rossum. But, yeah, it's just a travesty what, what government does to hard-working, honest people who are trying to make nutrient-dense food available to people who want access to this food. Victoria Block is a great friend of mine, and, in fact, she was very instrumental in me getting involved with the West Nay Price. She's the chapter leader of the West Nay Price group in West Los Angeles, and I had met her a little over a year ago at the Green Festival, and she was one of the people that told me all about it, and... You look at her and you hear that she was arrested. I mean, she is not at all a criminal. I just look at her to think that she was one of the people that was arrested in all this. Yeah, it's amazing. Vicky, Vicky's a great person. And I believe Vicky is the person who's been a chapter leader the longest since chapters under the Weston A. Price Foundation were originally created. Real testament. Oh, absolutely. She was one of the original members. She had heard Sally Fallon on the radio and got very interested in it. So, yes, yeah, she's been involved with Weston A. Price close to the beginning, and she's just such a great person. And certainly, I, I thank you for your work defending her. Yeah, Vicki was a great client. It was great working with her. Oh, yeah. And I know also in Farm Again, there was a farm in Ohio that they talked about with a buy-in club. Were you involved with protecting them? Yeah, we represented them. That was the Stowers family, uh, John and Jackie Stowers. They basically, they basically went shopping for people, is what they did. 
The Stowers formed Mana Storehouse, a private buyer's club with a private website. People could become members of Mana Storehouse. They'd pay an annual fee, and they would have access to uh, the Mana Storehouse website. And on the website would be a list of vendors from the area who made certain agricultural products available, fruits, vegetables, eggs, poultry, meat, dairy products. And the way the, the Buyers Club worked, Members would go onto the website, identify what products they would want, they would place an order, and then the Stowers would compile all of the website orders, and then they would go and pick up the orders from all of the local vendors, bring all the foodstuffs back to the Mana Storehouse, and then the members of the Mana Storehouse would go to the storehouse and then pick up their uh, products that they had ordered. And then at that time, they would uh, bring their checks to the Stowers, and then the Stowers, the next time they would go to the vendors, would give those checks to the vendors to pay the vendors for you know the, service, the goods and the services that the vendors had provided. The Stowers would charge a service fee to actually operate the storehouse to go pick up the products to bring the products back and to distribute them and the court found that the Stowers were selling and buying food and therefore needed all these licenses and permits and had to comply with all these other regulations for you know freezers and coolers and storage space and uh, you know, wastewater treatment, and bathrooms, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, in effect, the Stowers were just, you know, buying food for people is what they were doing. The Ohio Department of Agriculture and the Lorain County Health Department, when they found out about this operation, they convinced the judge in Lorain County to issue a criminal search warrant and so the Ohio Department of Agriculture special agents and the Lorain County special agents in conjunction with the Lorain County Sheriff's Department executed the warrant against the Stowers and uh, just basically held the, the family at gunpoint for close to six hours while the ODA agents and the health department agents confiscated all the food from the storehouse, including the food that belonged to the Stowers family personally. And the government confiscated computers and business records and everything. And, um, you know, just a real travesty of justice what the government did in that case. I know another big case with the farm to consumer, and certainly anyone who's a regular listener to my show has known, as I talk about it always in our appetizer section, is the case of Vernon Hirschberger. Is there any development on that case? Well, the legal defense fund is representing him. I personally am not. Our attorney that's representing Vernon is uh, a great attorney in uh, Wisconsin. Her name is Elizabeth Rich, who um, she was in private practice for over 20 years. She did environmental law, and Elizabeth is now actually trying to get a uh, goat cheese operation up and running. She's got some goats. She's got farm going, she's milking them, she's making cheese, and she's also still practicing law as well. 
I believe Vernon has a trial coming up fairly soon. I'm not sure if he's already had his trial yet or not. But he's being harassed by the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture and Consumer Protection, saying that he needs all these licenses and permits to do what he's doing, even though he's engaged in private you know, transactions as well. But the exact status of that guy, I just can't tell you because I'm not uh, directly involved in it. Right. And I know another big issue regarding dairy was these dairy companies that wanted to include artificial sugars like aspartame in dairy products without labeling them, which fortunately just recently the FDA struck down in that saying they had to be labeled. And I know that the Weston A. Price Foundation was a big advocate on making sure that they weren't able to get away with not labeling it. Was the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund involved with that at all? Again, just tangentially, we supported anybody's efforts to oppose that. But I, I have some bad news for you. The, uh, the dairy industry has just recently filed another petition with FDA asking FDA to change what's called the standard of identity for milk. And the standard of identity for milk is a federal regulation, which is basically the definition of what milk is. And the definition currently allows for the addition of vitamin D into milk, but it does not allow for the addition of anything else. So this new petition that the dairy industry has filed is now asking FDA to allow not only the addition of vitamin D to milk, but also sweeteners, artificial sweeteners to milk. For example, aspartame. And the petition asks that it not be required that it be labeled as such on the carton of milk. So the dairy industry is renewing its efforts to put aspartame in everybody's milk without anybody knowing about it. So we'll have to see how FDA responds to that petition. I have no faith in the FDA, and I have no doubt that they'll grant the petition because it's good for big business. And after all, we all know it's big business that owns and controls the FDA. It sounds like a lot of these cases can be long drawn out with the appeals and with these big ag companies going back to get their way? Yeah, it can. Yeah, we've had some cases. I've had one case here in Ohio that, that lasted six years. Uh, we, we've had a couple of cases, the ones I told you about in Wisconsin, where the judge said that you don't have the right to own a cow. That, that case has been going on for at least four years now. We're waiting on the um, ruling from the Court of Appeals. Yeah, so some of these cases, they routinely can take three years once you go through all the discovery process and you actually go to a trial and then you go to the appeals stage. And then if you win your appeal, the case can be sent back to the trial court for you know to start over again. So, yeah, it, it, it could take a very, very, very long time. We had an example where um, organic pastures out there in California submitted a petition to FDA, similar to what the dairy industry is doing now by petitioning FDA to allow aspartame in milk. Organic Pastures sent a petition to FDA back in 2008 asking FDA to change its rule that prohibits the interstate transport of raw milk across state lines. 
And FDA or Organic Pastures petition basically wanted it to be legal to transport raw milk from one state where it's legal to another state where it's legal. For example, ship it by FedEx from California to, let's say, New York or Pennsylvania where it's legal to buy and sell raw milk. That petition was submitted in December 2008, and FDA's own regulations say that FDA has to answer the petition within 180 days or six months. It took FDA, well, actually, four years went by, and FDA still had not provided an answer to the petition. So the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, on behalf of Organic Pastures, we sued FDA, and we were asking the court to order FDA to answer the petition because they're supposed to do it six months. It had already been four years. Well, lo and behold, once we sued FDA, they finally answered the petition and they denied it. So we've now amended our complaint, and we're now arguing that the denial is arbitrary and capricious. So I, I doubt FDA, with this current petition that's pending before them by the uh, dairy industry to add aspartame to milk, I would almost guarantee FDA is not going to take four years to approve that petition. I would suspect they'll approve it within 180 days. I would suspect that, too. I have some of the same cynicism. So we've been talking a lot about the cases that Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund gets involved with and the issues that they support. And this is all a nonprofit organization that runs based on people's donations. So how can people get involved as far as donating and becoming a member? Just go to our website, farmtoconsumer.org. We have various um, categories of membership. One category is uh, if you're a farmer, you pay, I think, $125 a year, and uh, some of the benefits of that is free legal advice at any time. We have a staff of attorneys on on call who can answer your questions. If you're a farmer, we can also draft documents for you. We can uh, file you know, articles of incorporation if you want to incorporate. Uh, we can draft herd share documents for you if you want to start a herd share. Uh, we have a 24-7 hotline if you are ever raided by any governmental entity and you need an immediate, you know, uh, immediate assistance, we can provide that for you as well. We also have a category of membership for consumers. I believe that's $50 a year. And we strongly encourage consumers to become members because it's the consumers who are really going to uh, support our efforts in protecting these farmers who are making your food available to you. Consumers uh, have access to our website which includes a whole bunch of data and statistics on uh, healthy foods, nutrient-dense foods, and the, the health benefits of consuming raw milk and other nutrient-dense foods. Uh, they have access to our, um, our shopping cart. We have um, materials there which can educate you on the benefits of raw milk, how to clean your bottles if you're a herd share owner, 
how to uh, protect your farmer in the event of a raid. I have a category of um, affiliate members, which is more like the buyer's club or the farmer's market who wants um, our, our protection. We also have a category of uh, membership for, um, I guess, that the, the focus is on uh, religious sects who don't necessarily want to engage in litigation, but who do want the other benefits of membership. Uh, we have that type of category of membership as well. We provide education. Um, we've got a uh, podcast, the Foods Right Hour, that, that we broadcast. Um, we can provide legal representation at times if your case fits within our mission statement and purpose and satisfies other criteria that we have. We can provide legal representation although it's never guaranteed. When we do provide legal representation, the Legal Defense Fund pays for all of your attorney's fees and all of your court costs and all of your other litigation-related uh, expenses. And we only get funds from uh, members and our sister organization, uh, the Farm to Consumer Foundation. We occasionally receive gifts from donors and contributors, but we do not take any corporate funds whatsoever. And so all of our efforts um, in representing these farmers in their legal battles really comes from uh, our consumer affiliate and our farmer members. So I, I would encourage everybody who is really interested in protecting small-scale pasture-based family farms that are making nutrient-dense foods available directly to the consumer to, uh, to join our group. I would encourage them as well. We have to go to our desserts in a second, but before we go, let the listeners know again what the website address is where they can find Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. It's, it's farmtoconsumer.org, or uh, the old address, which actually still works, is ftcldf.org, and that stands for Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the program. Sure, appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And now for our desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Tuesday, April 9th at 7 p.m., the West L.A. Santa Monica Weston A. Price Chapter has its regular monthly meeting at the Unurban Cafe. This month's is the first in a series of Forbidden Foods and will cover cholesterol. Chapter leader Victoria Block will be presenting a lively slideshow explaining the truth about how cholesterol functions in your body. The meeting will also consist of a potluck where you can bring your favorite cholesterol-rich foods. Also, Gary Collins of New American Nutrition has written a new book called Primal Power Meal Guide. This is a cookbook containing 35 primal recipes plus a bonus detox recipe. Many of the recipes are simple as they contain five or less ingredients and they take only five to ten minutes to prepare. You can get your copy at the website newamericannutrition.com. That's all for this week. My guests next week are Judy Brooks and Roy Walkenhorst, the executive producers and hosts of the television series Healing Quest. For more information on my guests, my news stories, and my recommendations, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well,